Hello there and good morning. Uh, well, it's morning for me. I don't know if it's morning for you, but I'm standing here with a coffee in hand and I'm looking out over LA where it's just been raining. And uh, I love that because although I love living in LA, I do miss the rain. Uh, LA is not thinking weather, I don't think. Uh, so uh, it's good to see a little bit of rain occasionally. Reminds me of home. I'm just back from uh, Las Vegas, where I was there for a few days uh, with Elliot Morgan, my housemate and fellow podcaster. And we actually recorded a podcast uh, the day before yesterday from Las Vegas about Las Vegas. Uh, I used a little bit of Baudrillard. Uh, I'm sure I'm pronouncing his name incorrectly, uh, so do feel free to correct me and humiliate me. But uh, Baudrillard wrote a famous book called Simulation and Simulacra. And uh, I used some of his ideas to talk about Las Vegas, the idea of what is reality, what is hyper-reality. Uh, we looked at what is fiction. And um, in that uh, podcast, uh, which was very short, it's just about 30 minutes, but I think there's a lot packed into it. Uh, there's a few angles that I didn't get to take. And uh, one of the things that I mentioned and then wasn't able to go into was uh, the notion that marriage is a means by which we attempt to navigate the impossibility of relationships. Now, after I said that, uh, someone who is on my Patreon asked me a question. They were asking me, you know, what did I mean by that? What does it mean that marriage is an attempt to manage impossibility? What, what does it mean uh, that relationships are impossible? Because that sounds very depressing. <laughs> because we have relationships all the time. There are relationships everywhere. So when you say relationships are impossible, what, what does that mean? And so I wanted to answer that, or at least give you some thoughts. Uh, I like to take some of the questions that people ask me on Patreon uh, and do reflections on them. And by the way, uh, if you want, please do visit my Patreon page. It is a lifesaver. It is the way that I uh, support myself, uh, create content. And there's plenty of free content out there, so you don't need to support me financially. But there's also plenty of content on Patreon. And uh, if you get something out of this and you want to buy me a coffee, you know, just stick down a few bucks a month. Uh, but regardless, I am committed to giving content. Um, so what do I mean by the impossibility of relationships? Okay, um, by the way, you know, this, this type of thing is very much me in my dressing gown, with a coffee in hand, talking very freely. Uh, what I'll probably do is a more in-depth seminar on this in the next six months, uh, one of the Paro seminars, which I do every month. Uh, so this is kind of a conversation. Hopefully you'll be, I don't know, working out at the gym or getting ready to, for bed or listening while you're in the car. It's not going to be, uh, hopefully, too intellectually taxing. Uh, and, but hopefully it's going to be interesting. Um, what, what I want to do is try to give you a very brief and an adequate history of our notion of romantic love, of where our notion of contemporary marriage comes from and uh, the type uh, of relationships that we are often seeking. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, of course, a very big subject. But one place to start is actually in France, uh, around the 11th century. In the 11th century, uh, people started talking about a, a type of love that we now call a more courtois, or courtly love. And courtly love was a type of love that developed 
between a noblewoman and some uh, knight. So basically the idea is this. Uh, a, a, a lady would marry a lord, uh, and mostly not for love, not for romantic love, not for any kind of desire, but for political reasons. Uh, maybe it's to unify two families. Maybe it's to uh, strengthen uh uh, to empires, or it's about property, or all sorts of things, symbolisms, uh, status, whatever. So marriage wasn't really something that people did uh, for romantic love. That was pretty much unheard of. It wasn't uh, a common thing. I don't even know if it would have been in people's heads. It would have been a strange notion. But then these poets began to write about how uh, a knight would often start by obviously defending these nobles and they would fight battles and they would gain status in the court. And then a type of pure love would begin to develop between the knight and a lady. Now the lady is married to a lord and she is unavailable. But the knight would dedicate himself to that lady and he would start to yearn for her and she would start to yearn for him. And the more elusive the lady was, the more the knight would want to dedicate his life to her, even giving up his life. And in this way, the woman would feel incredible. She would feel like she was a goddess, uh, someone worthy of death, of, of such self-sacrifice, and the knight would experience a depth of life as well, that there is something worth living for and worth dying for. And so in a weird way, the ultimate uh, desire in this type of relationship is the ongoing death of the knight. The knight feeling that he has found something worth dying for and the lady experiencing this, uh, this sense of uh, importance and deity. And they would both love each other. They would both desire each other. And at the end of the day, they might sleep together a couple of times. But that really wasn't the point. The point was that what they had was impossible. And that very impossibility really started to generate an excessive kind of desire. Now, one interesting thing about this is that a lot of historians don't believe that this really was actually something that occurred in reality, that actually it was a literary invention. It was created by various poets uh, to talk about the depth of life. And in that way, it is kind of a good example of what I was talking about in the podcast, which I'd recommend you listen to. It's called Fiction All the Way Down. I think it's episode 40. And in that, I was defining simulacra. And simulacra basically is a copy of something that doesn't exist in reality. So with courtly love, these poets were describing something that was happening in reality, but it wasn't, right? It was actually a literary creation. But what happened is the literary creation was so influential, it spoke so deeply to people, it, it, it touched people at a subjective level. And so people began to live it out. They began to experience it. So instead of it being a copy of something that was happening within history, it was a type of poetic creation that therefore created a copy. And the copy was what people really did. And then in, in our heads, we reverse 
the uh, causality and we think that, oh, this existed in reality and then people wrote about it and they sang about it. Now, what birthed out of this type of courtly love was the creation of a very particular type of desire. And that desire is often called jouissance within psychoanalysis. And jouissance is a term that is used to describe a painful pleasure, an excessive pleasure that is also a type of suffering. And of course, you can see this uh, whenever you imagine the Lord and the Lady and the Knight, and how the Knight and the Lady must experience this type of exquisite suffering. They can't be together, but the not being together generates this incredible fa fantasy of what they could have, a fantasy that animates their life that maybe the lady is thinking about the knight when she's sleeping with the Lord, or the knight is thinking about the lady whenever he's fighting some army. And so this painful pleasure animates their life. It gives them an experience of depth and density, but yet it's also a suffering that is potentially relieved on very few occasions when the knight and the lady can steal away for a couple of hours. Now, this notion of courtly love was so powerful that it began to stretch beyond France and started to be seen in the literature in Germany and in England and other places. And particularly within English literature, medieval literature, courtly love became not an end in itself, but rather a means to an end. It was what occurred in the run-up to monogamy, to marriage, that this desire, this impossibility, this chase, uh, then ended with two people being together. Now, I've kind of brushed over courtly love pretty quick, and uh, I should really spend a little bit more time on it. Uh, some things I should probably add are that it was a very ritualized type of love. It was a very noble type of love. Uh, there were a number of elements to it, and I'll just go through them very quickly. There was, of course, the start of the attraction. A knight and a lady would fall for each other. And then the knight would desire this lady from a distance. They would begin to imagine them, fantasize about them, and ultimately worship them, almost as a saint of the God of love. After some time, the third dimension is where the knight then declares his love for the lady and lets her know what has been indirectly hinted at, perhaps for many years. This is, of course, rejected kindly and politely by the lady with reluctance. She is married to someone else, and so she cannot be with the knight. In the aftermath of this, the knight dedicates his life and actions to her. He decides to remain faithful to her and he goes out in battle with her in mind in her name. And then of course there is the exquisite suffering. There is this type of death moon from this unsatisfied desire. The knight performs various deeds, becomes a hero, shows deep courage in the face of war and the face of death. And then there might be the consummation of their love, secretly, behind closed doors, away from the prying eyes of the public. And this just continues to go on, right until the end. 
So those are the kind of elements of courtly love. And then within, as I say, the English tradition, and actually C.S. Lewis brings this up in his book uh, on love, because he was really a medievalist uh, in many ways. Uh, no, he was a medievalist. Uh, that the English then changed the last two parts of this, and these secret affairs that the knight and the lady would have became the start of a monogamous marriage. And that is really how we understand love today. That is, our modern notion of love broadly can be seen as going through that trajectory. Now then, the problem with this is that we can see that within our very notion of modern romance, there is an antagonism built into it. The antagonism is the very notion arose out of a simulacra uh, and out of an impossibility. So our very notion of that jouissance that animates our desire, the materialization of that desire that, that, that so uh, impacts our life and gives meaning to our life is also one that uh, is impossible, that can't be consummated in any kind of lasting way. And so we have this impossibility built into relationships. Of course, you can just say, damned if you do, damned if you don't. The knight and the lady are unhappy if they're not together, and they'll be miserable if they ever could be together. So there is something about not simply two people getting married. There is a third that is within modern marriage, and the third is jouissance, the materialization of the desire that links the two people. Theologically speaking, actually, this is just... Uh, really symbolized in the idea of the Trinity. Of course, you have God and you have Christ. They are one, but they are not the same. And the, the separation between them is uh, manifested most strongly in the notion of the crucifixion, where Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this cry, theologically speaking, gives birth to what's called the Epoch of the Holy Ghost. And the epoch of the Holy Ghost can be described as the materialization of jouissance, uh, of the love between Christ and God that is the created out of their separation. And theologically speaking, this is seen as eternal and atemporal. In other words, you talk to you know conservative theologian, they'll say there is God and there is Christ, and the Holy Spirit is the materialization of the eternal love that flows between God and Christ. In other words, there is not just two, there is three. So every marriage, there is not just two, there is three. There is the, the couple. Um, in a traditional marriage, a man and a woman standing in the Church of England who, uh, with a priest in front of them. But the third, then, is the spectral dimension of jouissance that unifies the couple uh, that is there. And marriage in many ways, is an attempt to manage the difficulty of jouissance because it's a nightmare. It will ruin your life and mean you can't kind of do other things because life is about many things. It's about family, it's about friends, it's about creative processes. But when you get so caught up in courtly love, for a while the person can be your muse and then they'll probably be the death of you, right? So marriage is a way of trying to, within the English tradition, work with that jouissance without extinguishing it uh, and without letting it kind of go completely out of control. Now, with this then, you have the question of can you get rid of this impossibility? Well, no, there are different intensities of impossibility. There are different 
densities of impossibility, but the impossibility can't be got rid of. There is an inherent uh, tragedy to romantic love, but that doesn't mean that it's terrible. That's actually what makes it so amazing and wonderful and causes it to be an eternal adventure where there is no end. There is no point. Like one person once said to me, a friend, now this is going back 20 years, uh, we were a lot younger and I'm sure he would rephrase what he said, but he was getting married and he says, I've, I've crossed the finishing line. It was just a comment that was in a, a wider conversation, but it showed me that in his mind, marriage signaled the end of this difficulty of desire that now he got married, that he would be able to finally maybe manage that uh, or get rid of that excessive jouissance that can cause so many problems. Um, a lot of the time people get married very young, often to try to get rid of this excessive jouissance uh, in the naive thought that it will somehow um, uh, fulfill that. But actually, uh, you, you can't. And actually, the most dangerous thing in L.A. probably at the moment is polyamory. Now, not that there's anything wrong with polyamory as such, but if someone thinks that the way to get rid of the impossibility of desire is to have multiple partners, that is going to be, that's, good, that's not going to work. Because neither monogamy nor polyamory nor anything else can get rid of this impossibility. What you have to do is harness it and turn it to the good. And this is what the epoch of the Holy Ghost means theologically, is the Christian is the one who has a mode of life in which they harness jouissance for the positive political uh, uh, development of the world, right? Um, uh, that's why you know, Christianity is called the religion of love, because it's not about belief as such, it's about a mode of life in which this type of desire, this painful pleasure, this struggle, um, becomes the uh, meaning of life. It, it, it gets harnessed for the productive development of existence. And I think that's similar to what a good relationship is. Uh, it is when two people are able to not try to hide this jouissance, not try to fulfill it or get rid of it, but rather acknowledge it and find creative ways to dance with it. Uh, that's why you know, often people actually have to break up uh, they have to break up so that they can get back together again as different people. Or, or mo most often, we can go through breakups uh, so that we can kind of go out with the same person. In other words, we break up with particular people, but we have the same type of relationship, right? So the type of relationship we have never changes. It's just the faces. But actually, what you can do is you can do the opposite. Two people can break up and then start a new relationship where they are different. And I think for a lot of couples who get married when they're young, they have to go through this breakup. And sometimes they have to break up and they walk away and they're not together again. But sometimes they can break up, then go and meet together, say, in a pub, pretend they are strangers, pretend they've never met, and then begin to speak again in an honest way. And at that second time, try to go, right, this is a relationship where we're not going to try to extinguish this desire, this jouissance that's impossible to get rid of, uh, but rather we are going to make space for this Holy Ghost <laughs> that in our midst, the materialization of this impossibility. And we're going to try to change our relationship in such a way that it creates space for that to breathe, to be positive, 
uh, to be good. So okay, just then to recap over what I've said, um, this idea of courtly love, which arises at the end of the 11th century, is the notion of a type of desire born out of impossibility, out of not being able to be with the other, that really gives depth and density to life, but also creates a deep sense of suffering. We then took on that notion, that literary notion. Uh, it became manifest in people's real lives. Uh, it was taken on by various other poets and songwriters and, and, and literary uh, figures uh, to form the basis of our notion of monogamy. But often we get married in order to try to cover over the impossibility of the relationship, the impossibility of this desire, when really marriage at its best is an attempt to manage that, to harness it for the good. And in light of that, any attempt to get rid of it, whether it's through marriage, monogamy, polyamory, uh, or kind of a, some sort of asexual existence, will ultimately fail. Because this excessive juice, or, or, and even if it doesn't, it actually leads to a very, the, the more successful you are, the more uh, gray life will be. And we all go through that. There are years and years of our lives, perhaps half of our life, perhaps most of our life, which can be gray, where we try to run away from that experience. Maybe you could live your entire life without it, and you only experience it for a day. But that day will make your entire life meaningful. Everything will become meaningful in light of that. So even if it's just a minute, a day, a month, a year of your entire life where you're able to harness that jouissance in a positive way, that will render your life beautiful and meaningful and good. And if you're in a relationship, you may be at a place where you go, oh, we started off on the wrong footing. We started off trying to get rid of that when actually we need to harness it for the good, for the good of ourselves, for the good of our maybe kids, if you have kids, for the good of your family, for the good of your friends, uh, and wider still. Now, there is a political dimension to this and a religious dimension to it, but uh, let's not go into those for now. Uh, for now, I'm just going to um, get up and uh, get ready for the day. If you're interested in more content, come visit me at my Patreon page uh, or just start following me on uh, Instagram or Twitter or the Facebook, all of that. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>